Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. Before I jump into it, I just want to say that at some point in the near future, I'm going to be setting up some kind of live stream auction thing. I don't know if I'm going to do it on Facebook or if it's going to be on a new platform like whatnot, but I just have been unpacking some stuff and I have seen boxes upon boxes of cool and interesting things ranging from stuff worth like a dollar that I would basically give away just for shipping up to some pretty expensive and rare stuff that I will just never use again. So I don't want them to sit in a box and rot away. Uh, I like to hoard the things I actually use on a regular basis, not the other stuff. So I want to try to find a cool and interesting way to do it. And I do not want to just list it up on eBay because without some kind of explanation behind it, it's so weird to understand, like, why would anybody sell this? Why would anybody want it? But if I could do it like live style where I talk about it, explain what it is, I think I could share a lot of stuff with people that would enjoy it that are just sitting here collecting dust. So if anybody has a suggestion on what the best platform to do that on is, please let me know. Uh, If you work for or with any of these platforms, let me know too. I'd love to work with you on this. But either way, I just I want to both get all of this unique and interesting stuff in the hands of people that might actually enjoy it. And of course, it would be nice to stack up a little bit of cash and pay some bills. So hopefully I can kill a bunch of birds with one stone. But anyway, uh, enough shameless self-promotion. Let's jump into what's going on this week. First up is a site that I want to share with everybody who uses Raspberry Pis or anything like it, because while stock is due to come in by summertime, due to the global part shortage and a bunch of other stuff going on, Raspberry Pis have been out of stock and jacked up in price lately. So there is a website, rpilocator.com, where you can go to and it'll show you where, uh, what stores have things in stock, if they have it in stock and how much they are. And it's pretty cool to see this. Um, you know, I needed to buy some extra Pi stuff for testing for RetroNAS, and I ended up getting a Pi Zero, which was only found in a kit for, I think it was 175 or it was 150 for that one. That's normally a $15 device. Uh, and I needed another Pi 4 for some testing, which should be about a $50 thing. And that was the one that I believe was 175 which is gross, but I absolutely needed it for testing and I had to pay the scalp prices, which makes me feel bad as a person for feeding the scalpers, but there was no other choice. So checking out this website and constantly refreshing it multiple times a day will show you where things are in stock, uh, what the prices are and what country they're located in. So I've been checking this a couple times a day and I'll probably end up picking up one or two extras if I can get them at cost just to make projects like this easier. Because for me personally, especially the work I'm involved in and the stuff that I do, it's inevitable that I will have three or four pies sitting in a box somewhere that months will go by when I won't even touch them. And I'll think, oh, what a waste. I should give these to people who need them or use them for a different project and send that away. 
And by the time I have none left, I desperately need one and they're out of stock somewhere. So I think I'm going to keep an eye on this website. Uh, if you want more info on the site and other stuff about it, check out Easy Good Nights Post. And uh, yeah, I mean, pies are so freaking helpful for so many different things if you could find them at the right price. 200 bucks for a pie four is not good. I won't, don't recommend that to anybody unless you absolutely need one like I did in that situation. But 50 bucks for one? Hell yeah, there's a lot of stuff you could do that is well worth that 50, and even the Pi Zeros as well. Uh, and that's actually another reason why I've been holding off on that Pi Zero project I alluded to a few weeks ago, just because you can't even get them anyway now. So I'll get around to that as soon as time allows. But I, I also just think that it's no rush because it, I want to wait till they're back to $15 so a bunch of people could really benefit from it. But anyway, check out the post for more info. This week's roundup is brought to you once again by JLC PCB, and this week I want to talk about how to order your PCBs right through them. So just go directly to the website, click on order now, and just hit add Gerber file. You don't really need to worry about anything else on that page yet. I know it's kind of intimidating for somebody who hasn't really done this before, but just wait for your Gerber file to load, and then you could check any of the options you want below. Now, normally any of the options you'll need will be pre-selected based on the files that you upload, but you can tweak them to your liking. And I think the most common thing people might want to tweak is what color their PCB shows up as. So I usually use just certain color codes for prototypes and others for production, but there really isn't a right or wrong thing. It's just however you want to do it. After you're done, hit save to cart. And then either sign into your JLC PCB account, or if it's your first time doing it, you can create one right there. After you're logged in, just hit save to cart and then view cart in order to view whatever PCBs that you've added. If that's the only one that you need, then just go to secure checkout and begin the checkout process. After that, it'll ask you to confirm your address, which I'm obviously not going to show here, but then you get to choose your shipping method, which I always think is pretty cool. If you want very fast shipping, you could select the first option, which is a bit expensive, but you'll get your PCB really quickly. The bottom two options are great if you're on a budget and you're not in too much of a rush to get it, and the price is really impressive. Less than $6 total for a couple of PCBs and shipping. And there's a couple other options if you're interested, but I mostly just either like to use the fastest one or the slowest one, depending on I'm in a rush or not. And after that, that's pretty much it. Just submit everything through and then enter either PayPal or your credit card in order to pay for it. And you'll pretty soon get some confirmations that the PCBs are being made and then another confirmation after they ship. So that's pretty much everything you need to know to have basic PCBs made from jlcpcb.com for under $6. Professor Abrasive just uploaded a new firmware for the Satiator Optical Drive Emulator that only focuses on one bug fix. So last year, a new firmware was uploaded that allowed for better handling of SD cards that had latency spikes, which means overall you got better performance of audio and video when it was constant data being streamed from the card. And some people's SD cards were not compatible with that at all. You would just upload to the or update to the new firmware, and then you would basically hang with a green light on with, with it never booting. So I imagine most people who had that issue just swapped their SD card out for another one at this point. But if you're one of those people that had the issue, or uh, if you were about to purchase one and you want to make sure yours is compatible, this update should fix that. If yours is running and it doesn't have any trouble, I would probably just leave it as is and not mess with it at all. 
Um, so, you know, I'd kind of hope for a little more feature-filled firmware update, but hey, bug fixes are always appreciated too. For anybody unaware, the Satiator is an optical drive emulator that just plugs into the back of your Saturn with no installation required. You just plug it in, load your games on an SD card, and you can go right from there, and you still retain all functionality of the CD drive. It's a pretty cool device. It's pretty expensive, but there isn't anything else quite like it out there for the Saturn. Um, the Sega Saturn Shiro crew did a review of it. I did one as well, but I did one that was a little more of a pre-release you know, kind of look into what the product was. So you should probably check out theirs instead at this point. Um, and, you know, I do hope there are cool things in the future coming for this. Uh, I reached out to Professor Abrasive and I haven't heard back at all, but I would love to see another version of this with like an ESP32 chip in there so that you could stream games from your RetroNAS to your Saturn. Um, I'd also like to see other firmware updates and features built in. And I, I kind of hoped that Professor Abrasive would have left his Patreon account open for people to continue to support future development uh, but for whatever reason he chose not to so i totally respect that i just i love to see all of the cool developers and makers in the scene come up with more firmware updates for stuff after it's released not required of course but it's always exciting to see and that's not quite the case this time but you do get a bug fix which is kind of important so if you're having a problem with your satiator download this one and hopefully it'll fix it since the release of the Analog Pocket, there's been a few firmware updates for the Pocket itself, as well as for the dock. And the firmware update for the dock allows a bunch of different video modes to be passed through that. And there's a whole list of other stuff that came with those. So we wanted to post about it. And also, Dane created a video that shows you exactly how to do that update um, and what's involved in it. And it's a very easy, straightforward video. Um, and, and the process itself isn't too confusing either, but Dane kind of just puts it all into perspective and makes it easy to follow if you're new to stuff like this. So, you know, definitely just a quick update, but I wanted to point everybody in the right direction if you're looking to update your pocket and your dock. Um, and I'm not sure if Dane is going to be somebody who continues to do a lot of videos or if this is just a one-off thing, but you know, I think this is just proof that you don't have to be a YouTuber with 100,000 views to put together a good video. And by the way, what a cool freaking background. I love that setup. So uh, thanks for your contribution, Dane, and uh, we'll see where we go from here, I guess. Something Nerdy Studios just released a demo designed to be run on original NES hardware via the EverDrive N8 Pro. And what they're doing is incredibly cool and unique and very impressive to check out. So some back history on how NES and their cartridges work. A lot of the original games were essentially ROMs on a chip and used just the power of the NES itself to get whatever you saw on screen. And as the entire lifespan of the NES went on, more companion chips were installed in the cartridges. So that's why, I know I'm oversimplifying here, but that's why Super Mario 1 and Super Mario 3 could look so wildly different on the same console hardware. And what Something Nerdy Studios did is utilize the FPGA chip inside the N8 in order to create a virtual mapper that does things that the original NES could never have done. And this is a very interesting middle ground because it's not like some of those projects, which are still cool by the way, but it's not like some of those projects that essentially just create everything on the cart and use the NES to pass those through. This is something that could technically have been done back in the day, just the chips that would have been required to do this would have been insanely expensive back then, but I guess it's theoretically possible that you could have seen this. So the tech demo itself 
um, shows what could be done, but I, I strongly recommend going through Matt's post here because you get a sense of exactly what they're going for without even having to load the ROM up. And they even spoke to the developers directly in order to make sure they got the, the proper word out. But overall, um, the stuff that they're able to do, basically like full motion video, <laughs> uh, scrolling in eight-way directions, it's things that some 16 and 32-bit consoles couldn't even have pulled off that as well as this. So as far as tech demos go, it's about as impressive as you could ever imagine. Um, and it's just kind of something that could pave the way to future incredible games being made for the NES. And something Nerdy Studios even said they're eventually going to look to doing something like a dedicated cartridge for a finished game with an FPGA on it that handles all of this. So as always, I just, I think stuff like this is amazing and I want to see more of it. And it's very impressive and cool that something nerdy studios could have pulled this off. So definitely check out Matt's post on, uh, on everything that's involved in this. And you could even download the demo right now yourself. If you'd like to load it up on your N8 pro and give it a try. Okay, it's probably really easy to think, why the hell is Bob talking about an HDMI splitter again? This is like the third time within a year, aren't they all pretty much the same? And sorta, but I really liked this one. It had a lot of features and all of them worked really well and it's under $30. So I thought whenever you have something that's inexpensive and does its job exactly as advertised, it's something to get excited about. So here's a mini review, if you will, to go over everything that it does. And even if you don't think that you're interested, maybe give me a chance anyway, because you might decide afterwards that, oh yeah, I actually would use that for this or not. That's totally cool too. But anyway, it is a two-to-one HDMI splitter. I'm just going to run through features in no particular order. It is powered by micro USB, and it will be. Uh, it is able to be powered off of your PC, which is a very big deal for me because I don't have many extra AC power slots available, and I always leave it uh, leave it plugged into my computer for capture stuff. So that some people might not care. That was a bonus for me. The one in two out functionality was completely unchanged as far as I know, which is not surprising because I've rarely seen a splitter change the image at all, but it does not add any lag whatsoever. It accepted 3D, 4K, HDR10, does not compress the colors even a little bit. I did a pretty deep analysis on that just to make sure that everything was fine. So as far as one in two out, it's everything you could ask for. It doesn't do anything wrong. Uh, and it even worked with the PlayStation 3 as well as recording games off of an Apple TV, which is something not a lot of these things do. Now, it also extracts digital audio from the HDMI signal. And of course, all of the caveats apply. If you have a 5.1 signal, it's, you know, you're going to run it through SPDIF and have the same limitations that you would. I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole. I've watched a couple of really good videos on it. But I'll just say that the device performs as advertised, it takes that digital signal, sends it to either SPDIF or coax digital, and we used MD4A analysis to ensure and guarantee that this thing does not change the signal as far as we could tell. And MD4A analysis is pretty deep and, and you know, it's a pretty, uh, pretty strict analysis terms. So the fact that it passes that means that you could use this in your setup to do MD4A testing because it won't change the audio signal at all, which is cool. Uh, it's also going to switch on the front where you could either pull the EDID reading from your TV or tell the HDMI device to send it 2.0 or 5.1. I found that pretty handy because I manually set it to 2.0 for most of my testing because I don't have the 
ability or the need to capture surround sound at the moment. All my stuff, except for listening, is 2.0. And the other cool thing about it is the digital to analog conversion of the audio. The audio DAC is totally fine. Now, I want to make sure I say this correctly because I know I have a lot of audiophiles listening. For a $30 device that does other things and, oh, by the way, also extracts analog audio, I would say it's awesome. If you're putting it up against your super audiophile setup, it's probably meh. But in the context of what it does and what it's designed to do, I think it's a very cool extra feature. And it's then it's actually become my go-to. We used MD4A analysis and I put it up against a VUHD splitter that I've been using for years now. Uh, and it performed way better than the VUHD, both in the analysis and to my ears. At the moment, I have a, a very good NAD amp, but I'm still waiting on good speakers to arrive, and I'm using two very old, very crappy speakers someone gave me just because they're magnetically shielded so I could use them next to my CRTs. And even with those old beat-up speakers, the difference between the DAC built into the VUHD splitter and the DAC in this was instantly recognizable. I just put the other one in a box and, you know, and while it, the VUHD did digital to digital conversion fine, the digital to analog stunk. Now, I also put this next to a $125 ship Modi sheet shit. Ah, it's the Modi. And uh, that performed way better. But that's a $125 dedicated device that's kind of known in the industry as something that performs even better for the price when you consider what high-end DACs go for. However, with my crappy speakers, I could not hear a difference. I imagine that the moment I get decent speakers, I'd be able to hear the difference right away. But at the moment, I have two of these switches. Uh, I bought two because there were two different links and I wanted to make sure they were the same, or splitters, not switches, but I wanted to make sure they were the same and they are. They're, they were the same guts, the same case, just two different links. And I have one plugged into my computer, which I use for audio, digital audio extraction and capture. And I have another one plugged into my projector CRT setup where I use that both to split the signal and for its DAC to go into my amp. So I would say, in my opinion, it's absolutely good enough for most people if you want to extract analog audio. If you already have an opinion on DAX, it's probably not for you because you've already gone down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what's the best DAC. And uh, I have a link here to the, the Modi if you're interested, as well as the other amp I use, because they're both pretty cool. But overall, it performed way better than I would have expected a $30 device to do. It did everything it was supposed to. Um, it accepted every signal that I put through it. The only disclaimer I have is every time you see generic devices like this from multiple stores that are the same, there's no guarantee you're going to get the same twice. Now, a couple of friends wanted these, so I ended up buying two more from those same two links, tested them, and then forwarded them on to my friends and confirmed that they were all identical. But six months from now, you could get the same exact case with different guts, or on the flip side, those same links might point to something that looks totally different that has the exact same board inside and the same performance. So I always want to give that caveat and, and give that warning to people and just remind everybody that if you do buy a cheap generic device like this, try to buy it from a place that accepts returns because that way if you get it and it performs well, 
cool. And if you get it and somebody did a switcheroo and there's a completely different chip set of stuff in there, you could return it and not have to worry about anything. But so far, so good for this one. So if you're somebody that needs an HDMI splitter and an HDMI audio extractor and something that allows you to play PlayStation 3 and you know play games with your Apple TV through a capture card, this thing is definitely for you and it's inexpensive. And I love it when they're inexpensive. <laughs> I use some expensive stuff too, but I am way more excited about stuff that I could say is less than 30 than I am about, uh, you know, some of the crazier stuff. So hopefully this is a tool that uh, some people could use. And if not, I'm sorry for wasting seven minutes of your time talking about a splitter. I know we're a little late to the game on this one, but developer Mr. Sid has ported the Master System version of Sonic the Hedgehog to the Commodore 64. And the very specific reason why we didn't write this up before is because I wanted to truly understand what was going on so that I could explain it right. Because so many of the times that we've seen ports of games to other consoles, it's actually a reskin. So while that's neat, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to take away from anybody's work and hobbies, You'd essentially take a game that already exists on the Commodore 64 and replace its graphics and sprites with Sonic or Mario or whatever else. And it's kind of fun to see, but it's essentially the same exact game. Whereas this is the Master System or Game Gear version of Sonic that has been ported over to run on the Commodore 64, which please remember, this is a PC that was released in 1982. So you're having hardware that was, you know, should have been more advanced and being backported back to this. Um, and also there's always the console versus PC and how their graphics worked and how scrolling worked. Yeah, I would check out Chris from Displaced Gamers videos on those. I'm not going to try to fake my way through it, a decent explanation when he does it so much better. But um, it, it's, it was just an impressive feat and, and the tricks and, and the methods that were used to port everything over were very impressive. So... You know, it's something where if you have the ability to play games, and I believe this requires the RAM expansion, uh, but if you have the ability to play that, I, I would give this a try. And if not, I strongly recommend at the very least giving Rick's post a read. Chances are you've heard about this somewhere else by now, but just in case you haven't, Rick did a great job just kind of uh, summing everything up and posting uh, links to everything else that you would need for it. So, uh, you know, shout out to Mr. Sid for pulling this off. It's very, very impressive to see. And I'm glad we were finally able to, uh, to talk about it here. A new optical drive emulator was just announced for the 3DO that comes in two forms. One completely plug-and-play version that just plugs directly into the back, and another plug-and-play version that replaces the CD-ROM drive, where you just unplug the CD-ROM drive and plug this in in its place, with no desoldering or any fancy tools required. So there's a few things to note about this. I kind of want to run through them. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to Fixel, the developer of this, who was very patient and listened to all my questions and uh, kind of put everything into perspective so that I could do a good job talking to all of you about it. First and foremost, price and availability are not available yet, except Fixel's really trying to make it something that's affordable for everyone who owns a 3DO, so no crazy price gouging. And the parts are already being stocked up. I guess Fixel's been working on this since 2019 and has been stockpiling what was needed for a production run. So the first run of this shouldn't be affected by the part shortage. So I guess I would expect this to be 
reasonably priced and ready before the end of the year. However, Fixel's asking everybody who's interested to uh, fill out the interest check form just so they'll know how many to get ready to make, what kind people are really focusing on. I assume the plug and play for most, but you know, there's just data that needs to be compiled before these things are ready for pre-order. So please check that out. Uh, please support Fixel if you want to support work like this. Uh, and the GitHub is not available yet, but I have a link to it for whenever the project is released. So here's a couple of different versions of it, and here's how it'll work. Uh, I'll start with the internal version because there's a little bit less to say it's just because it simply is something that you unbolt the existing drive and bolt this one in its place. And there, once again, there's no soldering or desoldering. You just unplug the cables, including the ribbon cable, plug it into this device. And this is really designed for people with dead CD-ROM drives that don't want to mess with finding a new drive assembly or a new laser and then calibrating the laser. And it's a giant pain if it's not something that you're used to doing. So if that's the situation you're in, this is a, a neat and tidy way of just tucking this inside your 3DO and being able to launch games through either micro SD or USB. So that's pretty straightforward. There should be one or two different models available that match the model 3DO that you have. And that's going to be kind of cool, once again, for people with dead CD-ROM drives. But I think the one that most people are going to want and be excited about is the plug-and-play version called the Export, which is plugging directly into the expansion port in the back of the 3DO. And same thing, you get full functionality through microSD or USB. And this is also the same place that you would plug in the, um, I think it was the memory expansion adapter. And I believe this takes its place as that as well. It could work as a virtual memory expansion adapter. And I think this is the thing I'm most excited about because that means you just plug this thing into your 3DO and like the Satiator, you retain full optical drive support. So if you have a collection of games you want to play that are important and, and special to you, you can still have that nostalgic experience. But if you just want a game on original hardware and you don't want to mess with that, you just plug this sucker in and you, that's all you have to worry about. The connector itself was proprietary, so Fixel had to have those made from scratch, which is impressive. I love it when nerds go the distance for stuff like this. I'm always so appreciative and so excited to talk about it. Uh, but, I mean, it's basically everything that you would ask for. The only thing it's not compatible with is that failed PC adapter called the 3DO Blaster, which essentially added the 3DO chips via a card to the inside of your PC and passed the video through. Um, that's something that's probably more of a collector's item anyway, just my opinion on that one. But I have a feeling if you have one of those, you're probably keeping that for display or for collecting, and you probably have another 3DO that you're actually gaming on. But... <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, that's the only one it's not compatible with. Every other version of the 3DO, you should be able to just plug this in and go. Um, it is going to be an open source project, so once it's released, the code is out there. Um, the only question I asked uh, that I didn't get the answer I wanted to is, where, is there any chance of Wi-Fi support on this? And the answer was no, not at the moment. However, the fact that it has a USB port on it means that we should be able to use the Pi Zero project that we're working on, you know, once the Pi Zeros go back to $15, to allow you to connect your retro NAS and your library of 3DO games to this wirelessly through the USB port. So that's still not finished. That's still not 100% there. But um, 
assuming we get that project working on the mode, it should also work for this too when it's released, uh, which is pretty cool. And of course, it's open source, so you know I, I would recommend to wait for this to you know to hit the wild and everybody to test it out and see and kind of just compile any other features and then maybe we could work with Fixel to have another round made with any other changes that you might want. But to be perfectly honest, in its current form, I can't imagine much I would want changed about it. It's plug and play, no installation, you know, should be a high compatibility with games. I'm just excited to get one. So I uh, put my name down on the list. I strongly recommend that you do as well. Um, and once again, thanks to Fixel for taking the time to patiently answer all my questions and uh, and suffer through my annoying nagging. But uh, I, hopefully I did this product justice because I'm very excited about it and I'm very much looking forward to buying one and trying it out on a 3DO. Stika just posted an interview with the developers who worked on Affinity Sorrow, which is a brand new role-playing game for the Genesis Mega Drive that currently has a Kickstarter available. Now, the Kickstarter was already funded when we first talked about this last week or the week before, I can't quite remember which, um, but there's still time to pre-order one if you're interested. So my suggestion to you is to check out the original post we did on it, check out Stika's interview and hear directly from the developers, and then look through the Kickstarter and see if this is something that you would like to support. But I always love hearing developer interviews and hearing directly from the people behind the creations. And if you do too, uh, Stika is a great interviewer, and I certainly enjoyed listening to this one. So if you like it, give it a chance. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm just going to skim through these, and if you hear anything of interest to you, please check out the post and Lou's video. And if you're into anything Mr. Related or any of the other stuff Lou does, please consider subscribing to Lou and checking out all the other videos there. But let's go through and see what we got for this week. First, Robert Pipe, the developer of many awesome Mr. Cores, has posted a video where he demonstrates his debugging process and goes about fixing a bug, which is really good if you want to know exactly what it takes to go through this process to develop a core for the Mr. Also, the Mr. Framework has added support for adaptive scan lines. And what that is, is the scan line thickness changes based on the brightness in the area where they are, which kind of mimics a closer behavior of a CRT screen. And this, in order to take advantage of this, you need both the core and the scan line preset to enable it and to support it. So there's some big ones already. Genesis, Super Nintendo, Nintendo, Neo Geo, Turbo Graphics, all of those could support that as is right now. So that's awesome. So if you're into scan lines and if you've been checking out some of the new stuff that's available, update your mister, see if adaptive scan lines are available and give that a try. I haven't had time to try it yet, but I'm excited to because I really want to see how it affects the whole overall look of the system. And if it gives you one step closer to looking like a real CRT. Also, Hotego released a Hippodrome arcade core for Patreon subscribers, which is basically a fighting game where you could choose one of two human fighters to do battle on different kind of monsters, which sounds neat. Um, Antonio Valena has developed a screen that's that shows what's going on with your mister. So it allows you to see things like what core or arcade game is running, and I'm sure there's going to be other uses that you could figure out for it. And the cost for it is 50 euros. I saw pictures of this on Twitter. I thought it looked absolutely awesome. Uh, and I really got to talk to Antonio one of these days. So if anybody's friends with Antonio, please have them message me. You know, I think it'd be fun to have a chat and talk about all the cool things that they've been working on. Also, the YouTube channel, Mr. Retrowolf, has a series of videos where he's 
been teaching people how to code a Namco arcade core for use with the Mister. So that's another great behind-the-scenes look if you want to figure out how to do this stuff for yourself. And Lou himself did a tutorial on how to have a Namco GunCon 2 light gun used on multiple cores, which is something that I, I think I have a GunCon sitting here. I got to find it, but I, I really want to try that out because while I love using all of the original controllers, sometimes I think it's just fun to blast away at a light gun game and I want to make sure that it's easy to do so. Because for me personally, that's one of the biggest factors in trying this. If I have a bunch of people over and we're hanging out and somebody makes a comment about, oh yeah, you want to play that game? If it takes 15 minutes to set up and configure, everybody's lost interest and they've moved on to something else. Where if it's like, oh hey, let's play Lethal Enforcers. If I could just grab a gun con, plug it in, start shooting, and then have somebody go, all right, let's do Duck Hunt instead. And I just flip the core and do that. I think it just, you know, I, I like I like it when things are easier to use like that because it, sometimes it sucks the fun out of it when you have to spend a lot of time getting things running. Um, there's been a couple other updates as well, a bunch of Mr. Framework updates, some updates to the BBC Acorn, the Color Computer 2, the Turbo Graphics, and the 486 core should have Shadow Mask support along with some other updates as well. So once again, if you want much more detailed info on this stuff, please check out Lou's channel and this post, uh, and we'll continue to update you on all the awesome stuff going on in the mystery scene. I recently posted an interview with Mateus Nilwick, who was the developer that reverse-engineered the Game Gear motherboard. Uh, I talked about him when Tito posted a video over on Macho Nacho about it. That video is embedded in the post if you'd like more info. And in fact, I would suggest checking out that video first and then checking out the interview just so you get an idea of what to expect. But we talk about the reverse engineering process, but also about how he uses and purchased his own pick-and-place machine and you know, what other versions are available and what other stuff he's working on. It was a really interesting uh, interview and a really cool things, or really cool subjects to talk about. Cool if you're a nerd, of course, but uh, I just had a great time talking to him. The only thing I'll say is we recorded this over a month ago because I wanted to make sure that there was stock of his product available when the interview went live because unfortunately the way things happen especially now with a part shortage so often I'll release a video on something or an interview and it'll be out of stock right away and then I just have a whole bunch of angry people accusing me of all sorts of things for you know for for doing that so we wanted to make sure there was at least some stock available there might not be by the time this video releases but just take a, keep an eye on the main webpage on Matase's eBay store. And of course, you could follow on Instagram and, and everything else. But I definitely enjoyed this one. It was also sponsored by Riverside again. And because we recorded it a month ago, it was not shot with Riverside. So I thought it was a pretty cool comparison to last week's and the one coming up next week as well. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed that one. I sure as heck did. And thanks again to Matase for taking the time to, to just sit there and chat with me. A team of awesome developers have been working on a project called the MC to SIO, which is an SD card adapter for the PlayStation 2. And what this essentially allows you to do is run games from the memory card adapter right from a micro SD card. So it's kind of the same functionality and about the same compatibility that you would have running games from a hard drive, except you could use micro SD, which is much easier to manage on your PC, 
and you could use it on a PlayStation 2 Slim, which did not have hard drive support. Now, of course, you could use RetroNAS with both of these in a free McBoot card. However, the compatibility isn't as high over the network as it is through microSD and on the hard drive. So overall, this may be a better option for some people. Now, there are some downsides to it. First of all, you would need two cards in order to get this to work. You would need a very specific type of original Sony memory card with Freemic Boot loaded onto it, and then you would need this one, which you could then load your micro SD and load your backups from. So it is kind of a shame that you need two, but there's going to be a lot of work required for this project to be morphed into one memory card. Um, there would have to be some emulation of the original security done on it, which if I remember correctly, I think some of the PlayStation 2 security was recently cracked, so maybe that would help. Um, there's even more steps that you would have to take to make, make sure a one card solution would be compatible with the PS2 Slim as opposed to the FATS, and I think the Slims should definitely be a focus for a project like this because it replaces functionality that they don't have that the FATS do, you know, the internal hard drive. And of course, I would also love to see somebody throw an ESP32 on there so that you could just stream your PlayStation 2 games with the same compatibility as internal solutions, but over the network. So I think in its current form, the project is awesome. Uh, it's open source with license that I think is a little confusing to me. Um, I am not the best with deciphering open source terms and stuff like that. So I think this is the license that says anybody could make and sell these and use it for their own use, but you have to credit the original creators uh, and any changes made have to be posted. But please, please, please don't quote me on that. That is a guess. That's what I think this open source uh, license is. Please check out the main page on psxplace.com for more info. And I would just like to politely put the call out there. If you are a developer that is familiar with working on the PlayStation 2 and free McBoot, open PS2 loader and all that stuff, please consider popping by that forum thread and reading through and seeing if there's anything you could do to help the awesome team that's been working on this. I read pretty much all 36 pages uh, right about the time that I saw Tito's video on this because I, I really wanted to see what they were doing and I wanted to make sure too that before I started annoyingly asking questions that they weren't already answered somewhere along the way. And it just, it was very cool to see the development process come through to see how the, the steps they made uh, to get to where they are, to see new people jump in and, and give their ideas. It's kind of cool to just sit down and read a full evolution of a couple of years just, you know, over a cup of coffee. But if you're somebody that could add to it, especially if you're somebody that could create one memory card to do all of these things, so you don't need a free McBoot and a game card, you could just have it all on one. And of course, if you're somebody that could integrate an ESP32, that I'm sure would be used a lot more than you would expect, especially when more people in the, you know, the more mainstream retro gaming start to realize the advantages of using something like retro nas to have all of your games distributed but if you have the ability to to contribute please consider just jumping on that thread everybody seemed friendly too it wasn't like a hostile forum environment so uh, please consider helping out if you can um, if you want more info on this how it works and other stuff about it 
definitely check out Tito's video on it as well, because he kind of goes through everything that you would need to know about it. And there should be some available for sale. So just check the links to see when they're going on sale and for how much if you'd like to purchase a pre-made. And of course, all of the pre-made ones on an open source project, I'm sure there's going to be multiple sellers with multiple versions. So keep your eyes open for that. And as always, keep your eyes open to who's following the terms and who's doing it right. And I'm sure at least one of the notorious clone companies is going to pop up and make their own low quality version. So hopefully by now, you know who those companies are and you could just stay clear from them and buy from people who uh, the original creators on the forum give their thumbs up to. Well, that's it for this week. As always, thanks so much to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to people who support in any way possible. Without you, none of these videos, the website, and all of the behind-the-scenes research and development would be possible. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you all next week.